Good afternoon, everyone. It is July 7th, 2013, one day after the fatal crash of a Boeing 777 at San Francisco's airport uh, involving Asiana Airlines. And as those of you who may have uh, watched uh, television on uh, Saturday the 6th, it was, a, it was wall-to-wall coverage in the afternoon on the East Coast. And several of the people who were helping to provide that coverage were myself and Captain Tom Bunn of Sorefear Flying. We figured it might be a good idea for uh, at least a couple of us to speak our minds about what we think happened and uh, about how the media responded to it. And uh, Tom, thank you again for uh, taking the time today. Uh, hey, <clears throat> really pleased to be able to do it, Todd. To say that this has been a, a hectic uh, uh, 20 hours or so would be a bit of an understatement. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You were in the city and, and I got a call at 4 o'clock to come into the city to... Uh, to go to NBC. You were just blocks away at CNN. Exactly. And uh, although Tom and I have uh, worked with each other for years, we have never actually met each other in the flesh face-to-face. And yesterday right. was the closest approach we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a near miss. Okay, good. And from the logistical point of view, as far as how the media responded to it, typically when there's a major crash in the United States, this is something that gets instant attention and in the past, I usually have multiple emails or phone calls within minutes of it happening. This happened on a de facto four-day weekend. July the 4th was on a Thursday, and a lot of people, both in media and in non-media jobs, took the long weekend off. In fact, I t- took this advantage, uh, take advantage of it to take a very quick trip to New York, spend the day on Saturday, hang out, have a little fun, and head back to my home. And uh, lo and behold, halfway through my fun day, all this happened. And I did something that's highly unusual. I actually reached out and tried to find some media people, most of whom were on vacation, to tell them, hey, this crash happened. You want me to make a comment on it? I'm, I'm available. And uh, I ended up uh, commenting on several networks, as did you, I believe. Uh, I, well, it was all at NBC. Uh, after the 6 o'clock news, um, I did an interview that was going to be uh, used at the 11 o'clock news, and then they said, MSNBC would like to have you come over. So I was hanging around MSNBC on set there with um, the uh, Craig, who was the uh, anchor, for, oh, you know, three or four hours. Well, I was, uh, I had a, an even longer stint. I think I was at CNN for about six, seven hours, and another hour, about half hour to hour at, the, at Fox. But uh, a more general point I wanted to make to the audience is, when things like this happen, uh, myself, Tom, and others uh, that we've dealt with actually uh, end up doing uh, live radio or TV interviews or magazine and newspaper interviews, not because we have some great thrill being on, on television or on radio. Uh, I personally do it in part because part of what we do, all of us, and me with airsafe.com and Tom with what you do, is to inform the public about issues of aviation safety and security to allay their fears, to answer their questions, to make the whole process of aviation, especially accident investigation, less mysterious and less full of fear. Yeah, and, and Todd, you know, the thing is that when you, when you see what you normally see on TV and read what you normally read in the print, uh, it, it's so, it's just, for, as you know, it's just way off. The, the people who do uh, reporting really don't have a lot of information about how, how flying works. And, and, and then they like to make it interesting. And so it gets pretty distorted. So I think we played some role in keeping it honest yesterday. 
to, in a, to a certain extent, um, I can't blame the media for doing what they do because especially when you're dealing with 24-hour news channels, be it radio or television, you have to have something happening the entire time. There's no opportunity to have dead air while you contemplate what you're going to say next. So if it seems as though some of the reporters who are not experts in aviation are prattling on, on about things that seem to be of little consequence or they're rerunning interviews that don't seem to be adding much to the story, it's because it's very difficult, especially in the early hours, to cobble together content mm-hmm. that can be compelling and can fill the time up. Yeah. Well, in any case, um, <clears throat> you and I both had a chance to, to, to ponder this situation for quite a while. And some of the things that I thought were pretty interesting was that um, you could see clearly that uh, there was debris starting right at the seawall. And, and the tail pieces, that is the fins, the horizontal uh, stabilizer and the vertical stabilizer, uh, they are actually resting on the runway short of, well, actually short of the runway. They didn't even make it up to the, the even the very beginning of the runway. Yeah, I'd like to just point out to begin with that when you come in for a landing, you don't aim for the end of the runway. You aim for 1,000, 1,500 feet down the runway. You give away 1,000 to 1,500 feet just for safety so you don't land short. And not only did the plane land short of the runway, but it landed even short of the overrun, which it looks to be maybe 500 feet or so, uh, more safety area there. Um, so... The other thing that's interesting, too, is that the tail uh, hit the uh, the seawall, not the gear, uh, apparently. But the gear's pretty far down the runway from where the tail pieces are. Um, so the, if the tail was so low that uh, it hit the surface before the gear did, that meant the plane was flying very, very slow. Um, and there, then the, so you got two questions: Could the, Did the pilot not have enough power? Couldn't get it, or was the pilot screwing up? And from what some of the passengers said, that just at the last minute power was added, so that indicates that the power plants were working. So it looks like it's going to be a pilot error accident, as far as I can see. What do you think? Well, uh, I I tried to, uh, as as everyone, uh, most people know, you're a former airline pilot and military pilot. I try to actually uh, cut the pilot some slack and, and say that there may be other aspects of human error here that may go back to the actual design of the aircraft. Uh, as many of you know, accidents don't happen for one single reason. Very rarely does that happen anymore. It's usually a combination of things, sometimes very subtle, with interactions that weren't anticipated before. It's possible, although right now there's no evidence to point out that, point that out, it's possible there could have been some assumptions made during the design of the aircraft, during the design of the flight control systems, that made certain assumptions about what could or could not happen. And if those assumptions were incorrect, you could conceivably have a situation where the pilots were presented information that was incorrect, and they acted on incorrect information. So yes, the, the error could be entirely in the hands of the pilot flying the airplane, or the error could be in a whole series of human actions going back decades, and it'll take a thorough investigation that the NTSB is underway on to see if the human errors are more concurrent with the present day or concurrent with the past. Yeah, well, Todd, but the thing is that uh, when you're flying on a beautiful sunny day with uh, just gentle breeze,
And as I understand it, uh, the pilots in general that they were flying under VFR uh, conditions when it comes to lining up for the runway and landing. Am I not correct there? Yeah, yeah. The runway was, uh, they, they were making a visual landing. Uh, the ILS was notumed out of service, uh, but that doesn't matter. They were not under instrument conditions. And if the pilot was needing, for some reason, any uh, visual indication of the proper glide path, the uh, PAPI system was worked. That's a four-light system, so that uh, lights at the touchdown spot show whether you're high, low, or whatever on the glide path. But that's that's completely unnecessary when you have such good weather. There's just no reason for landing short of the runway. And another thing to mention here for the average passenger who may not know this, this is San Francisco International Airport, runway 28 left which is almost two miles long. It's 11,000 feet. Uh, actually, it's more than two miles long, 11,000 feet plus. This is one of the longer runways in use in any airport around the world. Very few runways would be longer or wider than this one, for that matter. This is a 200-foot wide runway. Uh, this is, uh, in your experience, what percentage of runways are that big and that wide? The only one I can think of in the U.S. that's used for passenger service that's longer is uh, runway uh, 31 left at Kennedy, which is about uh, almost 15,000 feet long. I mean, this is almost a, a space shuttle size landing strip we're talking about here. So this is not something where uh, you had a small runway. The geography around San Francisco's airport was such where during the approach phase, you're flying over water and there are no major obstructions for several miles before the end of the runway. And it was broad daylight. There was no low-lying clouds, no fog. Uh, breezes were light by no means anywhere close to being at the crosswind or tailwind limit or headwind limit or what have you. So from all appearances, this is a very nice weather day, a very benign set of conditions, even for a novice pilot. And these were not yeah, novice it, pilots. These it, are... just, it, 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 it was not a challenge. You know, I, I, having done some you know, long flights, New York, Tokyo, and back, 14-hour uh, flights. Uh, you know, you, normally you you have extra crew members so that you can take a break, climb into the bunk, get a nap. Um, but also that the, some of the research on fatigue comes in, comes to mind that um, when you have been awake for 16 hours, your alertness is um, and, and reaction time is... Uh, Similar to that of a person who is legally intoxicated for driving, you know, with about 0.8 uh, uh, alcohol level. Um, what might be interesting, uh, Todd, I think, is is um, if you figure this is 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, uh, San Francisco time, um, what time would that have been body clockwise for these pilots? Right, and, and we're assuming that these are pilots, since this was uh, an airline based in South Korea, that their home base was in South Korea. That's where their circadian rhythm was. But again, mm-hmm. pilots fly all over the world, especially on an airline like Asiana, and they may not have been synced to that time zone. And for that matter, the two pilots in the cockpit at the time may have been synced to completely different time zones. This is the kind of thing that will be resolved or explained in detail once the NTSB gets into their investigation. But this is certainly a question that I'd be interested in hearing the answer to. There was one other thing I was <clears throat> wondering about. Um, I don't know, Todd, if you're aware of this, but um, at runway 28 left and 28 right, they're very close together at, uh, at San Francisco. And you can't be doing 
you can't have two airplanes landing simultaneously on those runways unless the two airplanes have reported to the tower that they have each other visually in sight. Now, take an airport like uh, Houston or uh, Atlanta, the runways are spaced very widely apart, and you can have parallel approaches to those runways even in instrument conditions without the pilots seeing each other, but not so at San Francisco. And when you're coming in for an approach and a tower asks, can you uh, allow another plane to do a visual approach alongside you, uh, it's a little bit of a distraction, but um, it just occurred to me, what, what reason could a pilot have for landing short? And, and one thing I was wondering is, was there any uh, other plane landing at the same time? Um, last night at MSNBC, they did pull some air traffic control um, audio uh, before and after the accident. And there was a plane on the parallel runway, but it wasn't at all clear that, uh, that, there was any, uh, that they were close to each other. But that'll be something that'll be interesting to take a look at later on. And there's also, at least at this early stage, no indication that there's any other sort of visual distraction going on in the area, from uh, advertising blimps to who who knows what. So from the surface, it looks like there shouldn't have been anything uh, problematic about landing the airplane that day. But again, we don't know what's going on there. And, And ourselves personally, in the first few hours, all we had was what few pictures were coming through the media a few pictures that came up through Twitter and other social media as to what the scene looked like. So we were, uh, I personally was uh, making as few assumptions as possible because I was only dealing with what limited views I had. For instance, uh, for a long time, I couldn't tell you whether or not the aircraft was pointed in the direction of travel, its original direction of travel, if it turned 180 degrees after it departed the runway. It wasn't clear until some time after that I realized what the... uh, status of the aircraft was. And even so, I don't know if it did a partial turn, if it did more than the 360 degree turn when it left the runway. It's a minor point, but I'm just illustrating that the dynamics of the accident are not entirely known to most of the observers. Yeah, Todd, you know, one of the things that I was interesting, that that one angle um, during the time I was watching on the monitors at uh, MSNBC, um, you could see that the pressure bulkhead uh, at the rear of the fuselage was in view. Mm-hmm. So that that's the spot where the tail sheared, uh, sheared off. And, and since you were involved with the design of the plane, uh, I didn't know if that would mean anything to you or not. At first, well, first of all, it means probably nobody in the cabin was directly hit by the impact. Uh, no. Most likely. Uh, actually, do you have an idea how many... Uh, how much distance there would be from the pressure bulkhead to the first row of seats in the rear of the plane? Uh, that that I couldn't tell you, but and I don't know the exact configuration of that aircraft, but typically in the cabin, the very rear of the cabin, you're not going to have seats right up to the rear bulkhead. You'll have mm-hmm. lavatories and kitchen areas, etc. And mm-hmm. so depending on how that particular airline was laid out, you would have a different distance. It just struck me, thinking about this, that the one place I would go to to figure out the configuration of that aircraft is SeatGuru.com which uh, they're not, I'm not uh, pitching them for a commercial. I go there personally every time I fly to see where the good seats are so I have something with decent legroom. And that's usually very good at telling you exactly what kind of layout you have on different aircraft within an airliner, within an airline. So when I have the time, I'm going to go there and, and answer that question for myself. Roughly how far was it from the back of the cabin 
to the back of the first row seats. Yeah, but in any case, it seems to me unless there was actually a seat directly in front of the uh, bulkhead, nobody got hit directly uh, by the plane's tail hitting the runway. And, and as you said, there's got to be the lavatories and the galleys there, so there's got to be uh, at least six or eight, maybe even ten feet from uh, where the tail sheared off to where the first passenger would be sitting. Another set of information, which is incomplete, that was provided by the various authorities yesterday was that there were two fatalities, and both of them were found on the runway itself. It wasn't stated or implied that they fell out during the uh, crash sequence, or they fell to the ground after jumping from the airplane, or, or what was the event that led to them being where they were on the runway. There were also a number of people who were critically injured, and it was not stated and not clear whether that happened as a result of the initial impact or whether it happened as a result of uh, them leaving the aircraft after it came to rest. And as many of you know, there was a serious fire in most of the cabin area after most of the passengers had left the airplane. And it's unclear if any of those serious injuries were from burns. Well, I, I heard some, some, some people were taken to... Uh, the San Francisco hospital that specializes in burns, and they had mentioned burns last night okay. at uh, MSNBC. All right, I, I wasn't uh, aware of up, that. Up with a few people. And also the debris trail that you may have seen uh, on um, on television, there were quite a, what looked like relatively small pieces throughout that debris trail. And what struck me was that the 777 had not as many composite components as the 787, but a lot of the control services weren't made from aluminum uh, ribs and skin and whatnot, but from composites. And it seems to me that the kind of shattering effect that I saw with that debris trail was more consistent with debris from uh, uh, various kinds of composite rather than debris from aluminum skin and aluminum structure. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, that's something for uh, the NTSB to, to resolve, and that'll be resolved fairly quickly. What kind of debris it was, where the debris trail started, whether or not any of the debris was in the water prior to the seawall. Uh, I did see some boats, uh, what looked like police boats, just off the shore, but it was unclear what they were looking for. Todd, in, in the, the, the structure of the horizontal stabilizers, they were both right there together, although they were not lined up with each other. I'm assuming that there's a piece that connects the two of them, is that right? I, I would have known about 15 years ago when I was seriously in the 777 program, but I couldn't okay. remember to save my life. But right. given that the both, both horizontal stabilizers were very close to each other, it seems that whatever caused them to separate from the aircraft, the separation happened at virtually the same time. Mm-hmm. And they were right there together. And, but but they, were, they were not at the same angle, so something apparently had distorted them in different directions. Right. Which would make sense because that would be pretty low down on the tail for it to be hit. And then just off to the left was the horizontal stabilizer. And something else that the you, stabilizer. And something else you pointed out to me in a, an email that given that the tail section seemed to hit first and not the main landing gear, that the angle, the deck angle, when it came in for landing must have been much greater than you would see in a normal landing because obviously in a normal landing, the main landing gear hits first and the tail never touches the ground. I got a couple of emails from people saying that they looked on flight aware at the speed of the plane. I, they showed some, some readings of uh, very low speeds as the plane was uh, re- coming short on short final. Now, I don't know if you could consider that those, those readings are accurate or not. Uh, I, I wouldn't put a 
what would be uh, a piece of evidence not on the aircraft and not on the radar that could help in a situation, and I haven't seen any of this yet, if there's anything in the way of, let's say, uh, traffic camera footage or other video footage that was shot live of that area of the airport where you could literally see how fast the aircraft was moving relative to the background and with a little bit of uh, uh, mathematics can figure out fairly roughly how fast the aircraft was going ground speed wise at the time of impact. Well, anyway, uh, the NTSB is going to have, have this data that we're curious about in a couple of days. If they release it, then a lot of this will become um, pretty clear. Todd, I'm going to have to run, so anything you want to uh, discuss before I head out? Uh, that's that's the, uh, the, the last thing I had in mind. And again, I want to do this primarily to put this out there for the audience. Just give them an idea of how we're thinking about this just a day or so after the accident and how we're trying to come to grips with what information is out there, uh, the responsibility or the level of responsibility the media had toward all this, and uh, you know, just trying to uh, give some insight to the audience out there as to what the heck happened. Yep, okay, very good. I appreciate being part of it, Todd. And <laughs> it gets really, it's really interesting, both of us are within blocks of each other. Oh, my goodness. Doing, doing on TV. <laughs> okay, have a good one. All right, you too. Nothing.